Welcome to the Own Your Choices, Own Your Life podcast. I am your host, Marsha Van Weinsberg. I'm a business coach, speaker, and author of the best-selling book, When She Stopped Asking Why. On this podcast, we will use the tips, tools, and strategies used by myself and our speakers to break through and overcome the challenges in our lives. When we take radical responsibility of our choices, create boundaries, grow our courage and practice self-care and letting go of what isn't ours to control, we can completely change our stories. When we take full ownership of our stories, we take back our personal power and this allows us to impact, serve and support others by showing them that they are not alone and helping them find freedom from their stories. When you own your choices, you truly own your life. Let's dive in. Before we get started, I wanted to take a quick minute to tell you that it's finally here. I am so excited to announce the Rising Leaders Collective Membership is now open. Why Rising Leaders, you ask? Because we all have a leader inside of us who is screaming to rise. The leader who is ready for more growth, connection, expansion, and possibilities. This will include bi-weekly support as you learn to own and stand on your story in a supportive, collaborative space. Want to become an author, podcaster, or business owner by learning how to share your story authentically and in this supportive space, then this is the space for you. You do not want to miss out. There are some incredible promotions for the first 10 people who join. Sign up at the link in the show notes. I'm so excited to support you and bring this vision to life. Now onto the show. Welcome to another episode of Own Your Choices, Own Your Life. And today I have a very special episode that I am sharing from my other podcast that I am a co-host with my friend Sue Rue. In case you didn't know, I do have two podcasts going and I'm grateful for all of it because there's so many incredible people that we get to connect with. I wanted to reshare this episode from Everybody Holds a Story with Sarah Klein because it is an unbelievable episode and I it deserves to be heard and shared honestly many many times over. I originally heard Sarah speak on the Ed Milet podcast and I reached out to thank her for sharing her story and then took that little brave leap where it was like just ask her and I asked her to be a guest on Everybody Holds a Story and she said yes. And it was such a beautiful, vulnerable, real, raw conversation. So you're going to love this episode. Sarah Klein is a preeminent civil and trial attorney who specializes in representing sexual abuse survivors and is a nationally renowned advocate for legal, cultural, and political change for the support for the victims of sexual abuse. A former competitive gymnast, Klein is also the first known victim of former Olympic women's gymnastics doctor Larry Nasser. At the July 2018 SP Awards, Klein accepted the Arthur Ashe Courage Award on behalf of herself and the hundreds of other survivors who spoke out and testified about Nassar's abuse. Through her significant experience in lawyering some of the country's highest profile cases, Klein has become a leading voice on sexual abuse and other legal issues on television, radio, and in print media, including ESPN, NBC, CBC, ABC, Fox, NPR, The New York Times, The Washington Post, and USA Today. Sarah also hosts a weekly podcast called Bar Fights, taking on issues that matter that is found on all podcast platforms. 
This is such a powerful conversation. And as I said before, it deserves to be shared a thousand times over. She's very vulnerable. Sarah's so vulnerable about her story, her journey, how this abuse affected her mentally, physically, and emotionally, and how she continues to strengthen her voice to continue to support and help protect kids in needs. She really dives into endometriosis and what that has been like for her as she has spent years recovering from trauma, as well as finding and using her voice in the most powerful way. I'm so honored and grateful to share this episode on this podcast, because again, like I said, Sarah's story deserves to be told and it will reach somebody who needs to hear it today. We're just so excited to dive into a little bit more about you and your journey and your mission that is um, happening now in your life. And um, yeah. Yeah. No, I'm just honestly, yeah. If if you would like to just do a little intro, we're going to just dive in. Cool. Hi, you guys. My name is Sarah Klein and I have this sort of weird label that has been put on me as the first known victim of former USA gymnastics doctor, Larry Nasser. And I came forward in January of 2018 at his sentencing. And since then, my life has been a really wild ride. Um, I'm an advocate. I am a lawyer who represents survivors of sexual abuse in civil cases. And I think my most important identity is I'm a mommy of two little girls. I have a six-year-old girl and a 10-month-old girl. And if you ask my six-year-old, what does mommy do for work? She'll say, mommy keeps children safe. And so it's really my mission to keep talking about things that have traditionally been hiding in the shadows, those uncomfortable conversations that people don't love having. It's my goal to really normalize them and to bust through that stigma of shame, of guilt, of whatever negative stuff we're carrying around sexual abuse or really abusive any sort and just keep talking about it so that we can clean out those cobwebs from those dark, dusty corners and really shine a light on what's going on so that we can eventually, hopefully, eradicate this public health crisis altogether. But if we can't do that, we can at least give children and the adults around them the tools and the words and the language to be able to continue bringing this stuff to light. So that's who I am. So I'm already crying. Yeah, already (laughs) crying. Already crying. So good. So good. Um, there's, there's so many things we want to talk about what you're doing, what your mission is. I, I love, you can hear your fire and passion in your voice. And I love that because the piece about like keeping children safe, I, I, I think it's so important, not talked about enough. I have seen how you've been sharing and we'll make sure all your links are there, but you've really been sharing the process of grooming and what that looks like and how, how really easy they are at at easy it is for them to groom children and then combine that with layers of protection from other agencies from people from so it's this perfect storm and unfortunately the kids are the ones who are at the mercy of everything that is happening so I love that I love seeing that this is being blown open as it absolutely 100% should 100% should so I love that um would you share with us 
where a turning point was for you, because I know we will not spend this whole episode talking about him because he does not deserve that. We have so many other important things to talk about. I just really want to know where your turning point was that you understood what was happening or that what that was, and then what changed for you physically when you had that turning point? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, for those who don't know, I met Larry Nassar when I was eight and he began abusing me right away. He was not yet a doctor. He was this goofy, sweet undergraduate, you know, athletic trainer that wandered into our gymnastics place and set up shop. And the, you know, the fact that he was allowed to do that and encouraged to do that is crazy and bizarre and something I'll never wrap my mind around. But he then sexually abused me for the better part of 17 years. It was so normal. You know, you go back to Larry's treatment room, you, you know, lay down face down on the treatment table. And he does this very, you know, confusing treatment that could could be medical treatment if you're eight, right? You don't know. And he used the language and he used, you know, he used all the things to make you believe that it was legitimate. And I'm sorry, when you're eight years old, you don't know shit, right? You barely know how to tie your shoes. You, you know, are just learning to read. I just left my six-year-old's parent-teacher conference and I'm looking at her little squiggly handwriting. Like you don't know anything, much less how to identify medical treatment versus sexual abuse, right? And, And on top of that, it's the eighties. And so we weren't having these conversations. And so that treatment continued. It was as normal as Larry taping my ankle, like tape the ankle, lay down on the treatment table. And, you know, you have this, this, um, digital penetration ungloved, um, on a regular basis. So it becomes very, very normalized. And that's sort of a different conversation, but Flash forward, 25 years old, first year law student, Ivy League graduate, like I'm no dummy, right? I went to college in New York City, like I, I left the cornfield in Michigan. You would think somebody with, with those credentials would have the wherewithal to understand that it's it's strange that when you go to lunch with Larry Nasser and go back to Michigan State University and he tells you to put on a pair of baggy shorts and he does the treatment again, you would think I would say, oh my gosh, that's sexual abuse. I didn't. I thought it was the same old thing that he had always done. And I truly believed that it was to release this muscle, to help with this pain, to do this, to do that. Right. And so I share that in the sense that this can happen to anyone. And if you are in the cult, you don't recognize that it is a cult until you have that distance. So 25 years old was the last time I saw Larry, not because I was afraid of him or I knew that what he was doing was wrong. It was simply because my parents moved out of town and I never had an occasion to be back in the same place as him again. So that's when my life began to really fall apart. And I started becoming a recluse. I was very depressed. I was so anxious that it was hard for me to leave my home. To go to Rite Aid felt like too much stimulation for me to handle. It would take me days to build up to going to Rite Aid to pick up, you know, toilet paper, a prescription or whatever. Um, it felt like the stimulants of the world were too much for me. And that's where I went to the place of, I'm just not meant to be here. There's something wrong with me. Um, and that is also the time where my body began to scream. My body began to attack itself. I had severe 
abdominal pain. I would go to the emergency room. They would tell me nothing was wrong with me. They would do ultrasounds. They wouldn't see anything. And they would say, it's in your head. I would go to the gynecologist and they would say, there's nothing wrong with you. You should probably just go on birth control because that's a catch-all. And you know, there's nothing wrong with you. Why don't you go to the gastroenterologist for this pain? I went to the gastroenterologist at 29 years old. I had a colonoscopy and nothing is wrong with you. I was in such bad pain and I was told it was in my head. And that culminated, that went on for years. And that culminated at 33 years old. I'm in a one bedroom apartment. I'm not living my life. I'm barely getting by. I think there's something wrong with me mentally and emotionally. And I have such severe abdominal pain. I stop eating. I am so thirsty, but I'm completely dehydrated. I'm drinking all this water. I, you know, my bowel movements, you know, everything is screwed up. I'm super constipated. And then I have crazy diarrhea. The things I am eating are coming out of me undigested. And sorry if that's TMI, but it was all of these things and no doctor would help me. Everybody said it was in my head. I stopped being able to go to work because I was so um, malnourished and I lost probably, and I'm a little person and I lost probably 20 25 pounds. People thought I was anorexic. They were trying to have interventions. And so eventually I started sleeping about 22 hours a day because I felt so sick. I was in this pain. I would every now and then pop back into the emergency room. They would give me pain medication that I didn't need. um, And I went untreated. I then decided I need to be my own fucking advocate. And I went on the internet. And I read and read and read and read and read, and I discovered something called endometriosis, where it takes on average 10 years to be properly diagnosed. And it was all, I was reading all the same stuff. And I went on like Facebook groups and all the, and I reached out to people that had it and, and it totally lined up. You go to all these doctors. They all tell you you're crazy. You have severe pain. You have really heavy periods. You, you know, all these things. And I'm like, I think I have that. And I asked my doctor and they said, well, we don't know until we do a surgery on you. And if we find it, we'll just burn it. And then it will come back. It will ablate it. And then it will come back even more aggressively. So the best thing you can do is just get pregnant And then it will settle down for nine months. But then after you have a baby, we'll have to, you know, and having a baby wasn't even on my radar at the time. I was single living alone and their best solution was get pregnant and, you know, go on, you know, and then you have ablation after ablation and it will create scar tissue. And so if you can't get pregnant, we're really sorry, but we'll try. It was like the craziest fucking thing. So I schedule an ablation surgery. In, in Florida where I was living. And as that date got closer and closer, I'm like, this is not, none of this makes sense to me. And this sounds like a nightmare. And the more research I did, 
all of my endo sisters were like, don't do ablation. That's crazy. It just causes you more problems. The only solution is excision surgery and very few people in the country do it. And if you get to somebody that does it, it's likely they don't take out of state insurance or whatever. So it costs a ton of money, but here are the people who do it. And so I believe in divine intervention. I found a surgeon in Atlanta, Georgia, named Dr. Ken Sinervo at the Center for Endometriosis Care. All this angel man does is endometriosis. And they still have this service where you can submit all your medical records for a free evaluation. And I did that. And this angel man called me at eight o'clock at night. He had been in surgery all day. He said, I've looked over all your stuff and I don't know if you have endometriosis because it is true that you can't identify it from outside the body. I do need to do a surgery to look. And he goes, listen, Sarah, I hope it's not that, but this all points to that. Um, and we're not going to know if we get in there, but if we do find it, we excise it, we cut it out at its root. And I'm not claiming to have a cure for it, but this it gives you your best chance of a normal pain-free life. And this is all I do every day. And endometriosis can look a million different ways. And unless you're skilled and this is all you do, other doctors are going to leave some of it in there. And if you leave any of it in there, it's going to come back and rear its ugly head. And so I borrowed money. I flew to Atlanta and I had my pre-op with this doctor and he was the kindest. I mean, I can't say enough about these people in Atlanta. They are doing God's work and they treated me with respect. 75% of their patients come from out of state or out of country. People fly there from all over the world because nobody is treating endometriosis properly except for a handful of doctors. And so um, I had my surgery didn't know what to expect. And he comes in um, to my room after my surgery and he holds my hand and he said, Sarah, in my 20 years or whatever of doing this, that was one of the worst cases I've ever seen. We stage it in our pathology report and that was stage four plus. And here's how we stage it. And here's how the pathologists look at it. We remove the tissue and they do this and this. And the first thing he said to me was, I hate to ask you this, but have you ever been sexually abused? And I said, no, no, no. I was 33 years old. And there was also a question on his intake application that I had filled out the day before that asked the same question. Have you ever been sexually abused? And I checked, no. And still, if we pulled those records today, it would say no. And so he ended up having to remove my appendix, which was tethered down to my intestine, which was tethered and twisted to my pelvic sidewall. There was endometriosis on my bladder, on my uterus, on both of my ovaries. I lost almost all of my ovaries, but for about 10%, I would have lost my uterus, except he knew I wanted to have kids. So he left it. Um, he excised the endo from the outside of that. It was literally all over my pelvis everywhere. And I have like a 10 page single spaced uh, surgical report and 
photographs of that they took internally during the surgery that showed everything. And it's really, really graphic and gruesome. And so that's that story. And in the it, and then I go home and my hormones are all screwed up because I just lost my ovaries, which regulate my hormones. And I went into one of the deepest, darkest depressions of my life, not only because my hormones were off, but because my ability to reproduce had been severely compromised. And I still could not put my finger on what the fuck had happened to me. So I still wasn't saying, oh, I was sexually abused. And that's why this happened. Um, So then, you know, eventually I ran out and took the bull by the horns and said, I need to become a mom ASAP. Um, I did lots of IVF. I have two miracle daughters. I've had a miscarriage, um, that happened in, in public as I was testifying in the state of Rhode Island on the Senate floor. I miscarried in everybody. Um, that was traumatizing. Um, but it's been a battle. It's been a battle to reclaim my body. It's been a battle to understand the effects of child sexual trauma on the body. I think I'm still trying to figure it out. Um, I, you know, it's a happy story in that I went on to have two kids, but I fought like hell and had to spend, you know, over a hundred thousand dollars, which a lot of people don't have those means to try to be a mom because of what was taken from me as a child. And I had to fight my own medical battle. I had to be my own advocate when I could barely move and eat and retain water. I mean, it was, it was a nightmare. Um, and it wasn't until I was 36 when I finally realized that what Larry Nassar had been doing was actually sexual abuse. So that was a lot. Um, I'll leave it there. That was a lot. I'm so sorry. No, no. Okay. First off, please don't apologize. I think you're like phenomenal speaker, but your descriptions are so necessary. They're so important. It's so important. Um, and you can't, if you're listening, you can't see on video like that just brought tears to my eyes because I, I've gone through multiple stages of endometriosis surgery, 10 years, multiple, like the repercussions and the fallout has been something that's wreaked havoc on my body for years. And it's so interconnected and the things that it does. And I, you brought me back to, I must be crazy for years. I must be crazy. That's all I kept hearing. Um, it didn't even remotely like, and it doesn't have to be a child sexual assault that can lead to endometriosis, but a lot of times it is, there is something that happens there or it's trapped trauma that your body is holding on to, And it's unreal. Kind of trauma as a child our body holds it and then the body can scream at you mm-hmm. and it can begin to attack itself. Um, and you know, the body keeps the score, right? I'm sure. Yes. You yes. That book too. The body knows more than our brains do. I think in a lot of ways, right. Mm-hmm. I love that you knew back then in your twenties, you knew something was wrong. You're your gut was literally telling you something was wrong. And I just commend you for walking that road and continuing to walk that road to find out because how many people don't, how many women are suffering 
A, because I don't have the money or it's just such an investigatory <laughs> journey. <laughs> like, It's really hard to be your own advocate. I think for me, um, it was a matter of life and death. Not that endometriosis was going to kill me, but that I was getting to the point where I, I wanted to check out. I, I thought this, I'm not meant to be here. I really, really believe that I was not meant to be here and nobody would help me and nobody would, you know, I was in so much physical pain and so much emotional pain and I was being painted as the crazy one. Um, and so in the face of that, to try to keep researching online, it was like, I'm either going to die or I'm going to get help somehow, some way. And I still think it was one of the strongest moments of my life to be able to get myself to Atlanta, um, as sick as I was and as tired as I was and in as much physical and emotional pain as I was in with nobody helping me at all. Um, I, I think that was, was a turning point, um, in a lot of ways because, um, if I hadn't somehow, you know, sort of rallied that strength, I don't think I would actually be here right now. Yeah, that's, that's incredibly powerful. Thank you for sharing all of that because I, it's, to me, it feels like you almost had to go through those stages to gain some strength, gain some confidence in your voice, be the advocate. And then now you're in a space of like literally sharing the story. So as you did this and you recognize the abuse that you did suffer, where was the the gap from there to I'm going to start sharing the story. I'm going to start talking. I'm going to start being an advocate. Was that a lot of steps or was it a quick turn and no, this is what I'm doing now? Great question. So at Larry's sentencing in 2018, I was a Jane Doe. I was victim 125. And that was for a lot of reasons. One, um, I was so traumatized that I did not want any cameras in my face. I didn't want to be a face of anything. Like I had to go up and stand four feet away from somebody I desperately loved whose wedding I went to, who came to every birthday party. Like I had to go stand in front of him and he was in handcuffs and I had to talk to him about the fact that I knew that what he had done was not love. It was sexual abuse. A lot of the other survivors saw Larry as their doctor, right? And and Larry, I knew Larry way before that as a friend, as a family member. Back in the 80s, it was different. He wasn't the Olympic doctor. He wasn't even close to being the Olympic doctor. We were just young people. He was in his 20s. We grew up together in a way, right? And, and so it was much... I don't want to ever compare, but I was very traumatized. And so I, I was like, I can't do all of this. I need to do this moment. And that's all I can focus on. Um, I did that moment and I feel like I walked up there a little girl and I was terrified and living my whole life in fear and fighting and living in my little apartment and never going anywhere. And then I walked away like, okay, you know, I have to be an adult now and he's going to prison. I still love him. And many ways because that's complicated. I had to learn in therapy that you can still have love for someone and they can be an evil pedophile at the same time. Those two things can coexist. 
that's a hard one to wrap your head around. Um, and then, you know, I walked away and I was still traumatized and there were the ESPY awards in July of that year where we were going to win this big award in front of the whole country and world. And they were going to stage it beautifully where all the survivors kept coming and coming and coming. And I was approached by the executive producer to be one of the three women who accepted the award live on national television (laughs) in front of the whole world, right? And at first I was like, no, 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 no. And lots of other people wanted to be that person. And I said, they should do it. And they said, no, Sarah, we want you to do it. We know you can hack it live on TV. You're a professional, you're older, you know, it's a big ask. You can't screw up. You can't, you know, whatever. And I said no for a long time. And then they said to me, Sarah, this is not an award about being a victim of sexual abuse. This is about courage. And at the time, my daughter was two. And I thought, okay, this story is going to come out in her life at some point or another when it's age appropriate. How do I want that to come out? Do I want her to see my victim impact statement online when I was victim 125? Or do I want her to see her mom center stage live on TV, representing all the beautiful women standing behind me, accepting an award about courage. And so I said, shit, I think I got to do this. Um, And so I did. And that was another pivotal moment where it was like, oh, I can hack it. I do have this voice. I can do it pretty well. If I don't use it, who else is going to? And I have a duty. I have a little human right now. I have a duty to keep her world safer. I have a duty to protect her. And there aren't necessarily other people that have this story that I have that are a lawyer that have this public speak. Like I had to say, you have these God-given skills. Maybe this all happened for a reason. Maybe this was why you went through all of that. Now you got to use it and you got to say yes to everything because you never know the life you're going to change or save. And you're never going to meet those people, but you have to keep talking, which is why I say yes to everything because I don't know somebody in your audience Right now, if even one person says one thing in that conversation resonated, all three of us are doing our jobs. Mm-hmm. We're doing our jobs. I just want to like hug you. Yeah, I when I saw you speak on stage, um, all I kept thinking when I was watching you, first of all great speech. Of course you, you didn't hack it. You, (laughs) you rocked it. Um, but how did your body feel on that stage? Oh my gosh. I was, I was ready for that moment. I was really nervous. I knew I could do it. There's a calm that comes over me where it, it used to happen in gymnastics too. Like you're nervous, nervous, nervous until the judge salutes you and it's your turn. And then you're like, I've got this. I've totally got this. So I knew I had it before I even walked out um, on that stage. Ironically, I had a broken toe, um, a broken foot. Like it was, I was in a boot, I was on crutches. But in that moment, I'm like, I don't want to hobble out there on a boot because then people are going to be distracted looking at that instead of listening to what I had to say. So one second before I walked out, I put my high heel on 
And I just like had one of those out of body, like this is going to hurt like hell, but you have a bigger purpose. Just look cool. Um, I was ready. It was like a calm came over my body and it, and it was sort of a reclaiming of my voice, maybe not even a reclaiming. Cause I don't think I ever had a voice before that. Um, I never had a sense of self as a kid. People say like, Oh, you were robbed of this, robbed of that. And I'm like, I never had it. Mm. I was eight. I never had a voice. I was never, I never had a body like uh, in tune with my, I didn't know, like I never got that. So that's why I think I was so delayed in my adulthood was that I never, I was like, I stopped, I stopped maturing. I feel like at a weird young age and then I was supposed to be an adult and I couldn't have that. I couldn't go to Rite Aid. So I needed to just hide in my house because there was something wrong with me. Mm -hmm. Um, so that moment was, was amazing. That was catalytic for me because then my face and my voice got out in the world. And ever since then, it's been, um, a real snowball effect though. I will say, and I always say this on every show, I never want to paint myself as, Oh, she's on the other side of it. Or, Oh, she's shiny and bright and a badass lawyer and good for her. You guys, two two weeks ago when we went to Congress or three weeks ago, I went to Congress with Simone Biles and Allie Raisman and that whole thing. I was a mess. I was I couldn't get out of bed again. I was sobbing all the time. I, you know, had to call my therapist. Like I, I still go back to feeling like a little kid again sometimes when I have to sort of put it all out there again. So that's just called healing. That's just called getting on your yoga mat every day and practicing. You never freaking arrive. You never win a gold medal in yoga. You never win a gold medal in healing. And you're still going to have triggers. I met a beautiful 75-year-old woman at an event I spoke at this week. And she disclosed to me she was sexually abused by her mother's boyfriend between ages four and eight. She's 75 years old. And she said she still gets triggered and she still has those days and she still cries. And she talked about the effects on her body. She had intestinal problems, which are really normal. Um, I forget what it's called, but she's had that her whole life. And, you know, it made me feel really good to know that she still struggles with this, not because I'm happy that she's struggling, but because we're all in this together and it's normal. And we learn how to manage it and we learn how to talk about it. So nobody out there feels like they're the only one. Um, but it's just, you get on your yoga mat and you're 75 and you're still on the yoga mat and you're 85 and you're still on the yoga mat. And here we all are, but we're in it together. We don't need to be holed up in our one room apartments thinking about suicide. Right. And, and that's my message um, to your audience is for anybody struggling, please know girl, boy, I was there too. <laughs> and I'm still there some days. Mm -hmm. I think that's something that I've loved so much about what you've said. And I've heard you say multiple times, like it's, it's not a case of that you move through it and you're done and it's gone. And that's not how, how healing works. So yes, for anybody who's listening, please know that like, it's, it's, it's the roller coaster. Some days it's like, some days you feel like, okay, I've got it. And other days it's like, I don't even know what's wrong, but I can't do it today. And it's so, and I know you shared that on your solo podcast and I will talk about your podcast in a second. And I, I loved your vulnerable side of how you shared that, because I think it's really important and how 
I'm assuming you alluded to yoga here, but how do you find that dance between like wanting to use your voice and that responsibility of being that person and still listening to your body when it has those days that says this is too much? Because when you really, if you could actually put a weight to the amount of load that you carry, it's massive, right? It's massive. And some days it's going to feel like this is just too heavy. So how do you navigate that? Or how do you tune in and listen to your body when it's talking to you while you're trying to use your voice for so many good things too? I will just be really honest and say, I have not figured that out at all. Um, I really haven't. And, and it's the perfectionist gymnast in me that keeps going and going and going and going and hyper achieving and trying and, you know, putting all this stuff um, first. And it, it's, I think my highs are high, but my lows are low because I have not figured out how to take great care of myself. I go, 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 go until I crash. And when I crash, I can't stop crying. I feel like, you know, I'm being swallowed by grief. I'm being swallowed by trauma. I wonder if I can ever get back out of it. And then, you know, some, somebody calls or something's due or, you know, I have an event and I have to snap back out of it. And so I do, um, I don't have that answer and maybe you guys can help me with that. Um, I, I don't, I don't know. Um, I try my best, you know, I have two kids, so that does a good job at, at forcing me to have to be present. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that helps me with laughing and with, you know, I have the cutest baby in the world. How can you not, you know, sort of snap out of your own shit? Um, I have a good therapist, but I don't, I don't think I do a good job at listening to my body. You know, I haven't exercised the, for the better part of 20 plus years. Um, I think that's that black and white gymnast in me that if you're not going hardcore 30 hours a week, you're a failure. So why even try, you know? So, um, so I love yoga. I, I just do it in my, in my bedroom at night. I just stretch. I don't follow any class. I just kind of stretch and that feels good, but I don't have a good answer for that. I wish I did. And maybe if you check in with me in a year, um, I'll have a better answer. I don't, I'm not good at that. And I, and I'm trying to be better at that. I think that's a perfect answer because I actually think that that you've just give permission to so many people, because what happens a lot is people look at others like yourself and say, she's strong. It's easy. She's got it figured out. She does this. And I, and I don't ever want that message to come across to anybody because then it makes it seem as though it's not possible for them. If they can't do it that way, that's not real. So I actually think you gave an absolutely perfect answer. Thank you. Yeah. And I think people think if you slap on lipstick and a great, you know, power dress that you're somehow over all of it. And I get that all the time. Like, you're such a badass. You're this, you're that. I'm like, that's called lipstick and a power dress. Like, you don't like, that's not real. And it's funny, social media too. Like I have a great team that does a lot of my social media and, and I look really great and put together. And I'm like, you know what? And then every now and then I post, you know, my kids or my dog, or I just want to be... I'm just like everybody else and nobody should be fooled by anybody else's social media. You know, we're all human. Um, and a lot of days I, I don't get out of my PJs. Um, and so, and so, yeah, just everybody, we're all in the same freaking boat because we're human beings. Um, none of us are infallible. 
Thank you for your honesty, because no one ever has it all together or no one has it ever figured out. And um, just as you said at the beginning, like your body keeps the score. That's so true. Like our nervous system is keeping the score. So when everything that we've experienced or endured is like stored in our cells. So it never goes away. You know, when people are like, oh, I've had to like clear away this trauma, like nothing's actually ever cleared. Mm -hmm. We've just learned how to find a tool to move through it, to shift it whenever those, you know, feelings or sensations show up in our body, no matter what it is. Um, And just like you were explaining, or that 75 year old woman that you met, like, I can't imagine. So she was probably, you know, in what the 1950s or Mm -hmm. something going through that, like, what a lonely, lonely place she probably lived for many, many years. So, um, I love what you're doing right now and speaking and, and open, openly, um, discussing these uncomfortable topics because I'm raising a nine-year-old girl too, who's flipping her body in gymnastics. Like my sunroom is a gymnastics room and, (laughs) but you know, like our daughters, our next generation of humans, um, we need to be um, educating them on how, you know, these traumas, no matter what it is, if it's sexual, if it's emotional, physical, um, how it's stored in our body and then can manifest later on in life in certain conditions. So endometriosis or cancer or irritable bowel or all of these things like anxiety, depression, like how many people are suffering from all of those things right now? Yeah. Yeah. And having the discussion to normalize it and to, and to do it in a way that doesn't sound like we're a bunch of cynics and life sucks and it's really hard. I'm one of the most optimistic people, hopeful people, happy people you'll ever meet. Um, and so I want people to know like you can still struggle And still be a happy, hopeful, positive person at the same time. It doesn't have to be black and white. I have moments of depression and I have moments of hope. I have moments of, you know, devastation and trauma and moments of joy. It's, it's called life. Mm -hmm. It's called life. And we're all going to have our stuff and it's going to happen as a child. Maybe it's an adult divorce, a death, uh, you know, losing your job, financial, financial issues, everybody gets hit by something and whatever seems traumatic to one person might not be traumatic to another. It doesn't have to be that you were abused as a child, that you had a divorce when you were 50 and you're struggling right now. And you're feeling some of this stuff right now. Um, we all get it. Nobody gets through life without some dose of adversity. Um, It's just, I think about awareness, not ever feeling alone, not letting stigma define you or shame you um, and just being gentle with ourselves. And I'm not good at that, but I'm trying to be better at it. Right. And if, if, you know, different people can tell me that they can figure it out or, you know, we can all just help each other. I just, I think it's just important to all be in this thing called of life together and to not be carrying anything by ourselves because we all get it. We're all the same. Um, it just looks a little bit different on the outside, you know? Oh my gosh, Sarah, you and Marsha have so much in common. Like, I feel like I'm <laughs> talking to two Marshas in one screen. <laughs> it's a bit scary. <laughs> I love it. 
It's a, it's a bit scary. Um, there's so many things that you said there. And I think that I'm going to just pour into you for a second, because I feel very called to is that you had, you know, 30 years of quieting your voice and of not of your, of it being shut and, and no voice, nothing to it. It's like, it wasn't there. So it's almost like there was no feeling and emotion that was all trapped. So you had, you know, more than 30 years, 33 years of whatever the number there. And then all of a sudden it's only been the last three years that you've used your voice. So, and let me just for a second, you're not just using your voice. You're using your voice in like a big fucking powerful way. Okay. (laughs) Big, big, powerful way. And that you have no idea how much I love that. That is like my jam. That's exactly what I love. But it's definitely a dance of you are an incredibly strong person who can use her voice, but you, for more than three quarters of your life, it had been stifled. So it's going to be this dance back and forth where it's going to feel like I can't figure this out most days. And that's okay. Like, that's okay. So I just want to pour back into you a little bit, because I think that what you have done in only these last couple of years First off, no, you've spent so many years advocating for yourself, not even knowing what was there and underlying, but that strong part of you, that soul of you was advocating like something is wrong, something is wrong. So she was trying to get out, basically. I feel it like she was trying to get out and be heard. And now that voice is there. So it's a dance, but I mean, I think you're doing it incredibly, incredibly well. And being so real about it is so important. Thank you so much. That means so much. I appreciate it. I didn't even think about that. It's only been three years. (laughs) I I didn't, I've never even thought like that, but you're right. I mean, that's crazy. When I look back at the last three years, um, that's, that's pretty crazy. Yeah. It's huge. I just want to ask about your career, like right now today. And, um, I assume that everything you've gone through, everything you've endured has brought you down this journey to where you are now, but what does your, um, actual job look like now? Like, who are you representing? Like, is it, is it hard to be doing the job that you're doing, but, or is it easy because you're helping people and you kind of can see and put yourself in, in where they are at, if it's the parents, like if you can explain a little bit about what your career, it looks like now. Yeah. So I was a lawyer, um, back in my twenties before I had identified any of this. So I've been a lawyer for a long time. I'm turning 42 on Monday. Um, and when all this happened, I was a plaintiff in the case. Um, and we had a wonderful legal team of, middle-aged males representing, you know, 333 little girls. And I can't say enough about our legal team. They were wonderful um, and, and incredible. And I'm so happy that they were the ones to do our case. But I found myself in the middle a little bit because I was a lawyer um, and I did understand what was going on. Um, kind of taking that information and making it digestible to young women so that they could understand what was going on. And it just became very clear to me that this is what I was meant to do. And so I switched my practice and now all I do is represent survivors of sexual abuse in civil cases. Um, 
And I work with those lawyers that represented us and, and it's amazing. And, um, you know, people, people know are more familiar with sort of the criminal side of things, guilty or innocent. What people don't realize is criminal cases are brought in, at least in the United States by the state or by the country, by the feds. And it's the state versus the perpetrator and and the standard there is guilty or innocent. Um, Larry Nassar pled guilty and went to prison the rest of his life. That case ended there. Um, The civil piece is the survivor versus not only the perpetrator, but all of the enablers. And without a civil case, it's very hard to understand who knew what, when, how were we failed? How did people, adults in positions of authority receive information that Larry Nasser was sexually abusing kids 16 times over the course of 20 plus years and he was never stopped. Nothing ever happened. How? And the civil case answers those questions. And so now that's all I do. That's all my firm does. Um, We don't even do sexual harassment. We purely do sexual abuse against the entities who enable abusers. So we have cases in almost every Olympic sport, United States, water polo, taekwondo, swimming, soccer just came out um, against all sorts of religious organizations. Um, You know, we have a Jewish camp case. We have obviously tons of Catholic church stuff, but it doesn't, it's not just Catholics. It's everybody. Um, Boy Scouts, Boys and Girls Clubs, right? And, And the list goes on. And it's, it sort of, you know, identifies the places where pedophiles can get great access to children, right? The church leader, the Boy Scout leader, the little league coach, um, they're all getting just unfettered access to kids. And so that's often where we see this good guy perpetrator abusing. And I joke, you know, most of our defendants, you know, are big community members. They're the head of the church. They are on the school board. You know, Larry Nasser was running for school board when he was arrested. Um, you know, it, it's these good guy, good girl. I discriminate. We have female perpetrators too. Um, predators. It's not the person in a trench coat in a dark alley walking around, you know, not wearing pants around the playground, right? It's the favorite teacher. It's the best coach. It's the one that takes that extra interest in the children, the cool one, the one that hangs out with the kids after practice. Um, And again, I'm not a pessimist and I don't, you know, I don't want to paint every popular teacher as a pedophile, obviously, but um, that's something that people need to know is it's often the one you trust the most that can get away with this because it confuses the parents. It confuses the community. Um, before the 37,000 images of child pornography were found on Larry Nasser's hard drive, the community was rallying around him, calling us whores, liars, in it for money. Um, you just wanted to fame, like, we were called everything. I'm still called those things all the time um, on social media and whatever. And I'm like, you know what? If you've got to call me that, um, then you need to take a look at your own life because chances are you've been through something yourself too. Um, But yeah, and so um, 
And so that's, you know, that's important for people to know. And those are the kind of cases I do and my firm does, and it's full circle. It's very hard to listen to children being abused all day, every day. However, I am doing exactly what I'm meant to be doing. There's no better person to listen to that all day, every day than me, because I can now take something and I can do something about it. And so for me, it's been probably 95% of my healing process is using what happened to me for good and being the bigger bully and being a loud mouth. I mean, these, these defendants hate my guts. And it's not because I have more money than them. They have more money than me, right? It's not because I, you know, have a big PR machine behind me, you know, putting out flowery PR statements. It's because I have a very loud voice and I have social media. And the more I talk and the more I hit the media talking shit, the worse things get for them. And the thing these entities care the most about is their brand being damaged. And that's something that a voice can do. Um, It's not money. It's my voice hitting them and hitting them again and hitting them again and hitting them again until they take responsibility and accountability for the harm done. And so I love what I do. I'm in exactly the right place in my life. I'm proud to walk people through the process with love, with compassion, with empathy. Nobody understands it better than I do. I was just going through it myself four, five years ago. um, And I'm still going through it with USA Gymnastics and the Olympic Committee. And so I get it. And it's an honor and a privilege to get to meet survivors and to get to help them through um, and get them access to justice and hopefully accountability because that's healing. When you hear the bad guys say, we did something wrong that can give you permission to move on with the rest of your life. And so that's what I try to achieve. We love you. We absolutely. You actually answered one of the questions I did have is I wanted to know if this is causing other things to open up and be talked about more, like what other sports are being affected and impacted. And if this is opening up those doors and for that conversation. So I think that's fantastic that thank you for sharing that. And I also think by what you're doing, I appreciate you explaining the difference and how you are representing not just like it's you're representing the um, civil side, because I think what's really important here. Another thing that's important is this is not this is not the only case of this, but it's not a standalone case of one person getting away with something. It's how many pieces of the puzzle collaborated and covered and protected. And that just continues to feed. I think that's really important part of of this case, because I think I was reading that the first complaint, um, first complaint against Nasser was in officially was 97. And I'm like, 1997, like that is just horrific that it was so many years before anything was ever even looked at, like not even, not even that they look and didn't find anything. It was what even looked at. No. And, and one of his victims disclosed, she was like 10 or 12 and she disclosed it to a Michigan state child psychologist. And she was made to have to apologize to Larry. Right. And and there were lots of different places where, and that was a mandatory reporter. Why that person didn't pick up the phone and call the fucking police. Right. Um, and, and it, that went or 16 times where children said things about Nasser and the adults around them didn't want to 
create a wave, didn't want to falsely accuse, right? And so they protected Larry as opposed to believing a child. And, and unfortunately, that's a huge theme. If it wasn't, I'd be out of a job, right? It's almost everywhere that we see that happening because nobody, no school, no church, nobody wants to be put on that hot seat. And so it's easier to say like, let's move that, you know, priest to a different church. Let's get that teacher, you know, out of this school and put him at that school, right? They just shuffle them around. Um, and, and so, you know, no, no community is immune to this. No socioeconomic group is immune to this. No different race or gender is immune to this. Um, it is everywhere. It's just a matter of if you want to look at it or not. Every single person listening has encountered this, whether you know it or not, not as a victim, but in your community, um, whether you know it or you have yet to know it. Um, and so our work is to just keep shining that light and to keep asking the hard questions and to keep finding out more, right? And I was talking to somebody the other day who said, what's the problem in asking questions about that coach? You know, if they're spending extra time with your kid after school, why not just get the facts, ask the uh, tough questions? You're not accusing anybody. Just know what you're dealing with instead of blindly buying into people that we truly don't no, I mean, my mom would have better life on the fact that Larry Nasser was the kindest, most wonderful, loving, innocent person in the world. I would have bet my life on that, right? It's, it's, it's always that person that you really, truly love and trust. If it wasn't, then they would already be in jail, you know? Um, so we have the perps, but we have the enablers. And so my job is to really look at all of the factors that contribute to somebody getting away with harming kids and, and putting an institutional stop to this, not just stopping the one bad actor within the institution, if that makes sense. I was shocked when I first started my career with how many clients talked about their childhood abuse as a child from parents, siblings, other relatives, like there's just so much of this that's going on. It's not even just with these organizations as well. It's like, um, it's, I'm just so proud of you for, for stepping into this role and, and, and doing the work that you're doing because it is so important. And, um, yeah, I just, I love you. Um, one fabulous resource, um, is an organization called darkness to light. Their website is D and then the number two and then L dot org. And people always say like, how can I learn more or what should I be looking for? And they are a nonprofit. They have a free training that every single person can take. They also do trainings for companies or what, you know, gyms or whatever, but it's just like, it can teach you the actual warning signs, the things to look for, the ways to, you know, combat this. It's that education piece that I think is so important. If we're going to try to change our culture, we have to know what we're dealing with. And so, um, I don't work for them. I don't have, it's, it's a nonprofit. That's one of the best resources 
out there um, for people, moms, dads, parents, teachers. I recommend anybody listening to to just take their free training um, because it could be the matter of of saving your kid's life, of saving another kid's life in your community. Um, I think everybody should do it. And, And I really, really think education is a huge piece of this and stopping it, you know? Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. We'll add that to the show notes for sure. And like, listen to the kids, like yes. listen to them. That, why is it so hard for people to get that? I don't know. Statistics around false reporting are almost non-existent. Children don't lie, especially about this stuff. It takes so much for them to say what's going on. Believe them if they say it, believe them, teach your kids the anatomically correct name for their private parts. Um, Caitlin Brewer, the CEO of Darkness to Light, shared a story with me yesterday about a child disclosing to her teacher, my daddy is eating my cookie. And the teacher missed it because she did not say the word vagina. She used the word cookie and the teacher missed it. And it was sexual abuse and the father was then, you know, you know, to, you know, prosecuted or whatever. But that is a very real example of why we need to teach our kids the language so that when they do report, we don't miss it. And think about that child. She tried to report yeah. and was, she was missed because she wasn't taught the proper language report to her teacher. So another public service announcement, teach your kids the right words for their private parts. That is such an unbelievable example. And I thank you for sharing it, but I, it's so important because that's exactly like that. That's exactly the stuff that we have to continue to talk about and create that safe space for kids to be able to share. And I want to ask you if you could even speak into, I mean, I don't expect kids to be listening to this, but parents to be listening to this in the sense that when you are that child who feels very alone and you question what, is this okay? Is this okay? Like I, how do I know if it isn't, how do you know? Like how, how can you pour into someone who might be listening now to know that, no, this, what you were experiencing is not okay. Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think having a safe person, whether you're a child or an adult, having to talk to, whether it's a friend, a therapist, a teacher, a, whatever. Um, and and if you are somebody's safe person, asking those questions. You know, I try to ask my daughter all kinds of questions, you know, on the way home from school and, you know, just, just having a safe place to talk to someone, whether you're a child or being that safe person for somebody else, whether it's a child or your friends or an adult or whatever, um, and asking questions. If anybody had asked me one question over the course of those 17 years, the house of cards probably would have come crumbling down. Mm -hmm. I was never asked that question. I wasn't asked that question until my body attacked itself and Dr. Sinervo in Atlanta asked me that question. So being a safe person, giving other people that safe space and asking questions is my, is my number one piece of advice. 
Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Your, yes, your body puts you in a space of demanding answers is literally what it pushed you to that point. Did I hear you say on a podcast somewhere that the average age for reporting this, this makes me nauseous. The average age for reporting sexual abuse or recognizing or realizing is 51. Is it 51? Two for recognizing child sexual abuse. The average age for reporting or coming to terms with the fact that you were sexually abused as a child is 52 years old. And that is scientific evidence that's proven. That's not, you know, a bunch of us making that up. And the reason for that is to me obvious, um, but to other people mind blowing, which is because you're a kid when it happens. And so the first go-to is question yourself. Adults are up here. Kids are down here. You question yourself. You think it might be your own fault. You beat yourself up. You feel shame, embarrassment, or you stuff down and try to keep it from your conscious mind, but then your body attacks itself. You turn to addiction, drugs, alcohol, sex, shopping, you numb it out. You overeat. You, you don't want to feel your feelings. You don't want to have to go back there. And then eventually your psyche and your body scream loud enough that at middle age, it, it comes tumbling out. And I can't tell you how many clients I have that have turned to all of that stuff. And they call me up and they feel like they are the only ones. And they're almost embarrassed to say, you know, Sarah, I had to go to rehab, you know, for alcohol in my thirties. And I was arrested for beating someone up in a bar in my fourth. And I'm like, that's normal. That's normal. And they're like, what? And, and they're ashamed of them, that stuff. And so shame upon shame, upon shame, upon shame. And then it all comes tumbling out. And I'm like, yeah, that happens all the time. And they're like, what? You know, and then that they can begin to heal. But holy shit, it should not take until 52. But they were taught, you know, especially my male clients, you know, maybe you're gay if your priest abused you. Maybe you're, you know, don't tell anybody and, and be a really manly man and go beat people up because your priest, you had a sexual experience, your first sexual experience was with another man. And so you have to overprove your masculinity or, you know, with women, you know, become hypersexual because, you know, that's how you were taught to get love and acceptance because you were abused as a kid, right? By a man. Um, it's so fucking convoluted and confusing and it's one big shit storm of confusing thoughts, feelings, emotions, um, self-hatred, um, cutting, eating disorders, abuse, all the things. And then when we simply can't take it anymore, we come to terms with it. And especially now that we're talking about it more, we have these older clients coming forward and, um, and it's normal. It's completely normal to go through all of that, but we shouldn't have had to, mm -hmm. we should have known as some sort of an adult that we could talk about it, that we could share it, that we weren't crazy, that we weren't, we didn't have to self-harm in order to come to terms with that. And so that's again, why we're having these conversations, right? Cause maybe somebody listening is, you know, knee deep in alcoholism, um, because they had that experience that they've shoved down. You know, you guys listened to the Ed Milet podcast that I did. And he said, Hey, I had this experience as a kid and I'm 50, you know, 50 years old now. And now that you're talking about this, I'm giving this a second thought, 
right? Mm-hmm. And I know something strange happened, but I haven't let myself go there. Mm-hmm. I hear that all the time. I hear that all of the time. Our psyches and our bodies are trying to do the right thing by protecting us. So we have to thank them for that. They don't want us to have to go there. Um, but unfortunately, that protection in this circumstance isn't helping us, mm-hmm. um, allowing us to keep stuffing stuff down. So let's rip that big old bandaid off and find a safe place um, to really go there and it's hard and it's painful, but walk right into that ring of fire because you're going to walk out so much healthier and better prepared for the rest of your life. And it's never too late. If you're 55 and you're listening to this and you've never had a job and you're drinking your face off and you're sleeping with everyone and you have no money and all the things, it's never too late. Um, Walk into that ring of fire, walk out the other side and reclaim your life because your life matters. Your life matters. Every single life matters. If it didn't, we wouldn't be here. I'm not a religious person, but God, the universe, whoever does not make mistakes. You were meant to be here. You were meant to go through the stuff you you went through. I really believe that. People think I'm crazy, but I'm like, I'm grateful for it now because otherwise I'd be like freaking doing, you know, some boring ass law work behind the computer, freaking, you know, twiddling my thumbs. Um, now I get to this. And so it's all, it was all meant to happen that way. I know not everybody's on board with that, but, um, I really, really believe that because, you know, that gives me, that gives me gratitude and that gives me hope. And that's easier to feel than shame, resentment, embarrassment, guilt, all those things. Yeah. Every single word you've said for the whole podcast, but especially this last little bit is just so, it's so, so important. Like so important. Um, I would love to ask you the role and I, and I, I did read your chapter. So I would love to, to ask you your, the role of forgiveness in your journey, because I think it's, I think it's really, I think it's really important. And I know there's a lot of things that you've said about it, but this is all part of healing. And when we, a lot of the guests that we do interview, it's, it's amazing to me in the fact that most of them say what they have learned and everything they're doing is attributed to the stories that they've lived. And they've learned to come to a space of knowing that this, this is setting them up to do something with what they have lived through. So that level of resentment or rage is maybe different than it was before. So I just would love to know your, your, even your personal experience with forgiveness in any way, shape or form and how that has affected you in your own body? Great question. Um, you know, it's strange with Larry. I never felt that never felt any of that. I just sort of chalked it up to this is a fucking lunatic pedophile. Um, and now he's in prison the rest of his life. Rage I felt was at my coach, John Geddert, who committed suicide in February after being by the Michigan Attorney General's office with 24 counts of child abuse, sexual abuse, you know, human trafficking of kids, whatever. Um, for some reason, he got me worse than Larry did. Um, I didn't feel happy when he died. I felt ripped off when he died um, because he never had to take that accountability. So I really struggled. I mean, that's recent. Larry, I never felt that towards you're in prison. That's at the end. I I don't know why a lot of other of his victims did feel, you know, 
rage, burn in hell, go die, all this stuff they said in their victim impact statements. Um, with my coach, who I believe to be sort of the worst abuser of all of them, um, I did feel that. And it came back to what is best for me. What is best for me day in, day out? That rage was manifesting in crazy ways like road rage. Um, I was taking it out on the wrong people. I was snapping. I was hurting people I loved. And it was like, why are you ruining your relationships? Because you're pissed at John Getter, right? It, it came down to myself and, and my self-worth. And I am worth more than that. I am worth loving relationships. I am worth peaceful days. I am worth, you know, happy experiences with my kid. That rage will eat you the fuck alive. And it was eating me alive. And so I have found that I don't want to carry this because I choose me, not him. He's dead. I'm alive. The end. Even if your perp is not dead, Letting them eat you alive for the rest of your life, they win, you lose. Your life is worth more than that. You, Your experience of day in, day out, my ability to drive peacefully down a road without getting road rage is, is, is something I'm deserving of, right? And so got to watch where that rage creeps up because oftentimes it's, it's misdirected. Um, and so watch where that creeps up and then choose yourself. And that's hard to do when you're living in shame. So, you know, deal with the shame part first and then the forgiveness piece comes second. I forgive because I'm worth that. Not because they're worth that, but because I'm worth that. Thank you for that explanation. I knew you were going to say something like that because I remember reading it and going, I loved the way you explained it and the way that you shared it because there's almost this, there's almost this other level where you hear people say like, you need to forgive and move on and do all. And I'm like, okay, but it's a little bit messier than that. It's a little gray, but if you, because if you don't, then you want me to feel bad now on top of everything else that I'm not forgiving. Like that's on top of all the other stuff I have to carry makes no sense. It makes no sense. And so instead of looking at it that no, and that is a a check-in point I've done with myself many times. It's like, no, wait, what's that rage actually doing? Oh, it's hurting me. And it's still not changing the situation. So if it's not changing the situation, like, what the fuck? Why am I doing that? Why am I doing that? So it makes no sense. Gotta feel rage, do. And it still comes up some from time to time. And I'm like, ah. And, but then I'm looking at where I'm directing it and I'm feeling it. And then I'm moving past it. It cannot be all consuming. Um, and again, forgiveness. And and I talked to, to Catherine Schwarzenegger about this on my podcast. It's again, back to that yoga analogy, you know, you, you never arrive, you keep working at it and you do it for yourself, not for the person who harmed you. Um, and when it does, you do, you can still have bad forgiveness days. Um, you can still have that rage, just watch where you put it because you don't want to make your life, um, more difficult because that person is still has some control over you. So, um, don't take it out in the wrong places, journal about it, scream about it, beat up a pillow, do what you got to do. Um, but don't destroy your own important relationships and your own health and well-being. Um, cause you guys know hanging on to rage is another reason your body eats itself and, and hurts itself. Right. I mean, it might be even the biggest emotion that causes our body to attack itself. Like when you're walking around carrying that, 
that period of time that I was living in that one bedroom apartment and not coming out, like you could have looked at me sideways and I would have gone off on you. Like I was so tender to rage. It was horrible. Like I remember walking my dog one time and my dog peed on the grass and this lady came over and she in front of her apartment building and the lady came over swearing at me about the dog peeing in front of their apartment building, even though it was actually allowed to. Um, and I went nuts. I'm surprised I didn't get arrested. I mean, I'm not kidding. The punishment for that lady did not fit the crime. Um, but that was about something. I mean, I was holding it. I holding it so intensely in my body. Um, and that was around the time that I started getting sick. And so, um, just watch where you're taking it out. And if it scares you, um, you really need to look at it because that's not good for you. It's a great explanation. Like it's, if all of a sudden I, I say sometimes if your response is out of control and makes no sense and it's like rage upon rage, that there's probably something trapped inside. And that was me for years. Like if you even, it was like a cornered dog. If you even cornered me on something, I was like, no, I was, I was rage. I was rage. And you're not going to tell me what to do. And I'm too strong and I'm too feisty and all these things until eventually I'm like, Oh, this is exhausting. And it's still, it's not changing anyone. No. And people that love you maybe come at you with some feedback and your response is fuck you, get the fuck fuck this and fuck that. And I still find myself doing that from time to time and it's not helping me. Right. Like, I love you. Why am I do? why am I pushing you away? But there is that like burn it down before somebody can hurt you. I will hurt first. Um, not good, not serving you. And you're going to be living a pretty lonely life. Mm -hmm. Um, look at that. And unless you deal with that, right. So yeah, that's I'm still dealing with. <laughs> I have lots to say, but we're running out of time. <laughs> Sarah, thank you so much for your time and energy and realness, because that's what we are all about is keeping it real on this show. And I think with your work and sharing your story and speaking your truth and your voice gives other people permission to drop the judgment on themselves and to be honest and share their voice and sort of drop the fear around whatever they are experiencing or have experienced in the past, because Um, we all go through shit and we're all just trying to, (laughs) we're just all trying to stay alive and be better humans. Right. So called life, which is, you know, short, it's short (laughs) and it sounds cliche, but this thing called life is short. And so it comes back to choices. How are we going to do it? How are we going to live it? And we get to be in the driver's seat of that. And again, I know it sounds cliche, but it's true. Um, One last thing I want to say is I recognize that I've been given this platform um, because for whatever reason, the country was fixated on our story, a bunch of little white girls in leotards parading up, you know, and doing this victim impact statement. I recognize that it's a privilege to have this platform. Most people will never have this platform 
you know, and so for the person abused by a family member or whatever, and you're not a big shining news story, I recognize that I got that privilege and you don't have it. That doesn't mean that your story doesn't matter. That doesn't mean that there are not ways that you too can use your voice and impact other people's lives. Mine happens to be in a public way. I'm grateful for that, but I did nothing to deserve it other than be one of those gymnasts, right? So if anybody is listening to this, that's like, oh, well, she, you know, she can speak out because she got to be in the news all the time. Trust me, I recognize that. And I'm, I'm doing my best with that privilege. Um, but for those of you that don't have that privilege, you can still make a huge impact and find your own way um, and use your voice in whatever way feels good and right to you. You can do literally anything you want to do. Um, it just might not be handed out to you on a silver platter like it was to me. But I take that responsibility seriously. Um, and I recognize the privilege that I was given and most people aren't given that privilege. So thank you so much for saying that, because I think that is incredibly powerful. And I think that, um, recognizing that giving others permission to wherever they are on their journey, I do want to thank you for using your voice or platform in the way that you do now, because even though you do have the platform, you still use it and you, you do something so productive with it that I think is incredibly powerful. So I think, I thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you so much work. You are like, it's so freaking important, Sarah. Doing my best, girls, and you're doing your best, and we're all just doing our best. That's it. Humans helping <laughs> humans. That's what we do. That's what we're gonna do, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's exactly it. And I and I I do not speak lightly of the power of collaboration and connection. And I do. I, I say it all the time. And I think this is really really powerful. So, anything we can continue to help to do to share that message, I love the work that you're doing. And I think it's it's just it's needed, anyways. I just feel deep down, it's especially needed right now. I just want to thank you so much again for being here and taking the time. And um, yeah, I look forward to staying connected with you as well. Mm-hmm. Yay. Thank you. Yeah, it's so nice to meet you guys. Thank you for asking me. Um, it's been really fun talking to you and to many more wonderful, fruitful conversations together. The scripting workshop is here. This is a three-hour workshop that we ran last year during December and everyone loved it. Why scripting? Because scripting allows us to celebrate how far we have come and to see the possibility of what is coming. Scripting is a method of writing in detail about the reality that you want to create or manifest. It is allowing your imagination to take hold, communicating what it wants in a story-like way. It is an incredible practice that I have embodied and repeated many times in my life from changing jobs, publishing my book, and for very specific events such as my back surgery in 2020. It is about focusing on what you want to create, how you want it to look, to feel, and what you want to see. This is not about setting goals, resolutions, or vision boards. It is about setting the intentions for how you choose to show up for your life. This three-hour workshop is on December 4th. It includes the replay, a follow-up call, and actionable steps for how to create the life you know you are here to live. 
You can join us at the link in the show notes or when you join the Rising Leaders Collective, it is only 149 where you get first access to everything that we offer. You do not want to miss out. Scripting has become an exercise that has changed my life and I cannot wait to share it with you. Sign up at the link in the show notes. I'm so excited to support you during this exercise. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Own Your Choices, Own Your Life podcast. If you love this episode, please submit a rating and review on iTunes and please share it with someone you think could benefit from hearing this message or this podcast. I love connecting and meeting you. So please screenshot the episode and tag me on social media or Instagram stories at Marsha Van W. And until next time, remember when you own your choices, you truly own your life.